This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is just our time. And, and you know, the question is, are we good for it? I ask myself that question every day because I'm tired as hell. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, yep, I'm in, <laughs> you know, because we don't have a choice. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And this is our New Year's Day Amicus special. So from us to you and yours, happy 2022. Wishing you and everyone around you a happy, healthy, better year. Later on the show, Slate Plus members will get to hear me and Mark Joseph Stern rank our biggest jurisprudential hangovers from 2021, but there will be a moment, maybe two, of joy in there, I promise. That segment is accessible only to Slate Plus members. Thank you, as always, for your support. It's the support we need right now to do the work we do. If you are not a member, you can sign up at slate.com slash amicus plus and access bonus content like my conversations with Mark, ad-free versions of all of Slate's network of podcasts, and you will never hit a paywall on the website. And it's just a dollar for your first month. That is slate.com slash amicus plus and as always 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 thank you for supporting the journalism that we do for this episode we wanted to reflect on all that has changed just this past year year two of a global pandemic year one of the biden administration certainly year one of america's casual new flirtation with armed insurrection um but we also wanted to think really broadly about the trump era the obama years before that the sweep of racial justice reproductive freedom voting rights kind of everything and the person we really wanted to talk to is a friend of this show sherilyn eiffel Sherilyn is president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She assumed that role in 2013. That was the year the court struck down a central component of the Voting Rights Act. And Sherilyn has recently announced she's going to be stepping down from that role this spring. She joined the Legal Defense Fund as an assistant counsel in 1988. She has taught at the University of Maryland School of Law for decades. Uh, and her 2007 book, On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century, reflects her lifelong engagement on issues of race and justice in American public life. She's working on a new book about America's ongoing embrace of white supremacy for Penguin, which is going to publish in 2023. So, Sherilyn Eiffel, Happy New Year. Welcome back to Amicus. And thank you from us for your tenure at the nation's leading civil rights legal organization. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Dahlia. Um, it's great to be with you. And really, the privilege has been mine. I know that sounds um, horny, but honestly, it has been um, a dream come true to lead LDF, an absolute dream come true. 
It feels like a lot has changed even in the less than a year, in the months since you last appeared on the show, Sherilyn. We've had Mm -hmm. this drumbeat of vote suppression in battleground states. We've got a sense that racialized police violence in America continues almost unchecked. And I think this burgeoning quiet tolerance of citizen vigilantes from Kyle Rittenhouse to SB8 to the harassment of election officials and school board officials. And I wonder if just as a sort of framing happy 2022 question, you want to talk for just a minute about this arc of the moral universe. Uh, Is it bending in the right direction right now? Am I just flagging the really garbage things? Uh, what <laughs> what has happened even since we spoke last spring uh, that is arresting you right now? Well, um, it's interesting, Dahlia, because, you know, I, I had the opportunity to make such a presentation to Senator Manchin earlier um, in 2021, you know, kind of what has happened since the you know beginning of the summer of 2021? And I ran it down. I talked about the threats to election officials across dozens of states, the number of election officials who have resigned, um, the proliferation of additional voter suppression laws around the country, the Brnovich decision from the Supreme Court in July, which um, severely weakened Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which they promised us we could keep. Uh, after the Shelby County case in 2013, you know, so uh, actually a lot has happened. And, um, you know, the threats against secretaries of state, which many of them choose not to talk about very much, but it is happening for sure. Um, and um, and so, yes, all of those things have happened. But you asked me a question about the ARC, and I, and I want to say something about that that I think is important, particularly about why 2021 felt so incredibly awful. I mean, obviously, you know, people say, well, it started with January 6th. And I have to then push back and correct you that it started with January 5th. On January 5th was the runoff election for the Senate in Georgia. And the result of the incredible mobilization engaged in by grassroots groups like Black Voters Matter and the incredible work of organizations like LDF, the organization I lead, and many others engaging in voter protection work and election protection work and collaborating with people like LeBron James to have more polling sites open and to recruit 40,000 poll workers in the middle of a pandemic. The result of that election when more people voted was that Georgia elected the first Black senator since Reconstruction and the first Jewish statewide uh, officer ever. That was January 5th. Okay. What we think about when we think about the beginning of 2021 is January 6th. And I understand why. It was, you know, obviously a a terrible, violent coup attempt, threat to overthrow the presidential election, a clearly engagement at the highest levels in abetting or at least condoning this action. And we're learning more every day about how far those tentacles went. But what we have to understand is that the manifestations that we saw in 2021 were all a response to 2020. And if you consider 2021 unhinged from 2020, you get very depressed. But you have to recognize it as a direct response to 2020. So what was it a direct response to? What we saw was in 2020, the highest voter turnout in any presidential election, no matter who you voted for, 
in the midst of a global pandemic. We had voters in the primary election in Fulton County, Georgia, waiting online for nine hours to vote um, at a time when the pandemic was hitting the Black community incredibly hard. You had people standing online, Black people standing online for hours in Milwaukee in the primary, as you will remember, to vote at a time when the Supreme Court decided not to allow the very modest extension of absentee voting return dates. So you saw this incredible determination to vote. You saw that happen through November and you saw it happen on January 5th. Something happened on January 5th that doesn't happen in that special election. 94% of the voters who voted in the November election voted in the special election. That doesn't happen. So you had this incredible mobilization. What's the other thing that happened in 2020? Millions of Americans of all races came out onto the streets to protest against police violence and racism because they were moved by seeing the torturous killing of a black man on a street in Minneapolis by a police officer who had his knee on his neck. And what was aroused within millions of people, including white people who had never protested before, was empathy, was empathy and a sense of justice. So it should not surprise us that in 2021, what we saw immediately beyond even January 6th was the proliferation of voter suppression laws beginning in March in Georgia. And those laws were transparently directly targeted at 2020. That's why a feature of the Georgia law is that you can't give water, that it is a crime to give water to a person standing online to vote. They also know that Black voters stood online for nine hours in Fulton County to vote. Why do you see the proliferation of laws about pro-truth and that prevent the teaching of any aspect of racial or, or gendered history that would make students feel discomfort or guilt? Because they saw the consequences of white people feeling empathy for racial injustice in that response to the killing of George Floyd. They saw the power of that. And their answer was to cut it off, is to not allow our children to feel those things, to learn that history. I have said, Dahlia, in the sixth grade, when I read the diary of Anne Frank, I felt guilt. I am not German. <laughs> I did not harm anyone. But as a human being, I felt a sense of shame and guilt. This is what they want to cut off. So everything that they are doing and that they have done in 2021 that has made us feel that, oh, my God, all is lost, is a response to the power that was revealed in the midst of a global pandemic with the most authoritarian president we have ever had in office in 2020. And that includes, by the way, the attack on the iconography of white supremacy in the Confederate monument protests. If you think that this wasn't traumatic, seeing Robert E. Lee come down, if you think it wasn't traumatic, seeing these statues taken from their exalted space and having people learn about the lost cause. So when you see all this pro-truth stuff happening, it's in direct response to that. And sometimes when we isolate the response, we feel like it's not going our way, that it's not going to be progressive. When in fact, what they are doing, and I frequently hear the critique, we're too responsive. No, they're responding. Everything that we've seen over the past five or six years has been a response to what we have won in terms of culture, in terms of perspective about race in this country. 
is there, there's a reason it comes after the first black president. It is a response. We are not the ones responding. They're the ones responding. And I think we have to keep that perspective in our head, lest we feel impotent. Sherilyn, I love what you're saying, and I love the language of pro-truth, because it gets to the heart of what I've been feeling even since the first impeachment, which is this has nothing to do with justice or law. This is a messaging war. Yes. And this is a messaging war that as long as you control the levers of media, it just doesn't matter what happens. And, you know, you know as well as I do that the Washington Post spent six months and I don't know how many dozen reporters to produce this flawless TikTok of what happened on January 6th, and it didn't matter. Uh, But you're saying it matters, and you're saying pro-truth is about simply being loud and everywhere and saying things over and over. And I think it answers... My next question for you, which is, you know, LDF was historically not about being loud in messaging. I think the Washington Post described it as LDF lawyers do the work. They don't talk about it. You know, they leave the organizing and the campaigning to the media. Um, LDF just sent lawyers into courtrooms. Uh, But you took a really different posture at LDF. I think that you really kind of vaulted over that notion that we just, you know, get in the courtroom and we win our cases because the judges and juries are white, uh, which was originally the LDF posture. You are not just about winning cases. You are describing a massive messaging campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I was intentional about that. When I interviewed for the job, I told the board that that's what I was going to do that I had been a young LDF lawyer and I too had been raised with that idea and trained with that idea that we do our talking in the courtroom. And I remember even then um, that I was like, really? Because the other side seems like they're talking everywhere. You know, (laughs) this was around the time that the American Enterprise Institute was, you know, um, being created and the Heritage Foundation. There was a whole infrastructure and apparatus being created to carry the message of the right And one of the things I saw from my years of teaching and teaching con law in particular was um, seeing the change of language. I remember using, um, you know, the the various case books. And, you know, when I was a a young lawyer litigating at LDF, to describe affirmative action as reverse discrimination was such an insult. It was so awful. And then I remembered one semester I was teaching using the Rotunda case book. And the section on affirmative action was called reverse discrimination. It had entered the the lexicon and the mainstream um, because we had not fought back against the use of the language, right? Of course, we were doing the cases, but that's different than allowing the other side to name and describe their initiatives in ways that are offensive and antithetical to the truth. And so I was very clear that I was coming back to LDF, to lead LDF, and that in addition to our four pillars, you know, education, uh, economic justice, voting rights, and criminal justice, that the narrative was going to be a pillar that would infuse everything that we did, that we were not going to allow ourselves, our struggle, our demands to be defined by our opponents, that we were going to speak everywhere we could, that we were not going to be um, falsely modest about our hard work or our success, 
that we were going to build out our organizing capacity. We had organizers on staff, um, but they were only in the criminal justice area. I wanted to staff up our organizing department to make sure we were kept honest and to make sure that we were hearing directly from the community and that we weren't kind of off just doing our own thing and that we would build a rapid response capacity. Because being a lawyer is a weird thing. You're litigating a case. You know, you're working on something that maybe happened five years ago. But, you know, every day there are new civil rights outrages and you have to have a capacity to be responsive to what is happening today. And that is how we were able to be so quickly engaged in the issue around police violence, which we had worked on for decades. You know, I mean, LDF litigated the Tennessee versus Garner case, which is, you know, kind of the seminal case involving, you know, whether police officers can shoot somebody in the back. And um, but but we needed a, a capacity to be able to speak in the moment into these issues. And that was extremely intentional. This is going to be deeply adjacent to the question I just asked you and that you just answered. But I find myself thinking of you and LDF all the time now when I read Sonia Sotomayor. Every time I read a dissent from her focusing on the unseen, on the invisible, on the unnoticed, on the numbers, on this world that you are describing kind of as pro-truth. She's kind of given up on persuading the court. I think she's largely given up on persuading even her liberal colleagues. She is reaching out to some constituency that is very much who you are both speaking for and speaking to. And I can't really think of that was what Justice Marshall did. I yes. mean, it's a really amazing, yes. it's both sad, Sherilyn, that we've come yes. so far and 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 reverted to that lone descent and also really illuminates what it is she's trying to do right yes. now. Yes. You, you need a chronicler of the truth, you know, everywhere. If, if you are in your academic institution, you know, if you are in your a journalistic institution, if you are in the Supreme Court, there has to be a chronicle of the truth. And what I feel when I'm reading Justice Sotomayor's opinions, because, you know, what you can do is, you know, uh, I'm a lawyer and I am proud. I always have been proud of being a lawyer. And, you know, I'm deeply concerned about the profession and um, who we are and our role in a democracy and upholding the rule of law. I'm kind of super nerdy about that stuff. So you can convince yourself that maybe I'm overdoing it. You know, maybe I'm, <laughs> that can't be how, what they mean when they say that, you know, I read that part of the opinion and it just kind of really hit me on the crop. I mean, you know, you could see it this way, but you could also see it this way, you know, and what I see Justice Sotomayor doing is telling us what you think you see is what you're seeing. And since such an important part of maintaining um, the control of white supremacy in American life is gaslighting, you know, is convincing you that what you see is not what you see. Um, You know, I wrote about this extensively about, about lynching and, you know, the kind of, you know, people would be like, well, maybe it happened and maybe it didn't happen. I think it happened in this County, but maybe it was the other County, you know? Um, No, it was right here. I can tell you the year, you know, Um, you were this age when it happened, you know, you do need the truth. And so I do see her speaking the truth. I I do see her um, speaking in clearer and clearer terms about that truth. And the part that I think is important to remember, Dahlia, is that I'm sure it's painful for her. 
you know, because I think people feel like, oh, you know, everybody piles on, you know, on social media. Get it, Justice Sotomayor, you know, she's telling them, you know, she's laying down the gauntlet. It's, you know, you know, I get it, too. You know, you get the pats on the back for speaking truth to power. It's painful. It's painful to have to speak these truths. And I'm sure in the environment that she's in, it can't be pleasant to be in, an, in that environment, you know, in which you are seeing a truth that your colleagues deny is happening. Um, so I think we have to make space for that, too. I think it was true for Justice Marshall that, you know, we, too, get disillusioned because, you know, Justice Marshall was, again, another person who also believed in the legal system and the rule of law, believed in the court and believed in the collegiality of the court and so on and so forth. Um, it's painful. And so I think that needs to be under, understood to understand she's not just um, writing screeds, you know, she's making a very intentional decision that is a weighty one, I'm sure, for any justice to be able to speak this truth. We're going to take a brief pause to hear from some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Let's return to my conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel. I think you're probably one of the first people who said to me when folks were starting to say, you know, years ago, the court's just illegitimate. Maybe we should work to delegitimize it. Hooray, you know, six people in 10 now, according to the recent polling, say the court is purely political. Hooray, the approval ratings are in the 40s. And you have always been the one in the midst of those conversations to say exactly what you just said, which is we need a functioning court. Uh, we have to litigate in front of that court. If, God forbid, the court has to decide the 2024 election, we do not want a court that the entire country has written off. And that just persistently plays in my head when I hear people exulting about uh, the court's, uh, you know, public opinion polling being in the toilet, because I always hear your voice saying there's no plan B. <laughs> we yep. don't. Plan B is the army. Like, plan yep. B is not yep. good. Yep. And I know you've just come off the Biden commission, and I know that that issue of legitimacy mm -hmm. was sort of the heart and soul of what, in some sense, how the entire commission got framed. And I know, you know, you, you've had quibbles along the way of how much to center that legitimacy problem. But I guess I just want you to walk me through why, you know, you, you served on that commission as a civil rights attorney, because you really think, for all the reasons I've just laid out, that delegitimizing and destroying the court doesn't take us to a better place. Is that fair? 
Well, I guess I would say this um, because it wasn't an easy decision to decide to serve on the commission. First of all, I don't have the time, (laughs) but (laughs) I was prepared to make the time. And I was keenly aware that, you know, everybody on the commission, you know, most of the people were former academics and, and I, you know, lead an organization that litigates before the court. So I, I, it was tricky. Um, But I strongly believe that we should fight for the court, not for the individual justices, but for the court. I will not make it easy. Um, I will not go quietly into that good night and say, you can have it. It's all illegitimate. I won't. I think we should fight for it. I think we should fight to have a justice the kind of justice system that we think is really just. And I think we should fight to strengthen uh, the court and all of our political institutions and certainly our, our legal institutions. The rule of law is a key component of any healthy democracy. It just is. And as a result, lawyers are um, tasked with upholding the rule of law and have more power perhaps than they deserve, than we deserve. I've always believed that. We are thrust into a leadership role that sometimes is undeserved, but that's the way it goes. And it's not just in this country, that's around the world. So for me, um, you know, and and everybody's got a court, everybody's got a high court. (laughs) This is the one we got. And we need to figure out how to make it worthy of a healthy democracy that purports to lead globally. And that is at the top of protecting the rule of law in a country engaged in an experiment that no other country has taken on in this way, and certainly no other country has successfully accomplished. That's the task. And um, so I'm not going to participate in throwing up my hands and saying, you know, and therefore there's no court and we don't pay attention to the court. No, no. I also believe as um, a civil rights leader and a black person that there is no forum we cede. Cede, I mean, C-E-D-E. We have to show up everywhere. People who say like, we're just not going to vote. Nah, I don't think that's, that's the way either. Listen, there's a lot wrong with our political system. Do I think that therefore people should just say, you know what, it's all corrupt, so I won't vote? No, I actually don't. I think that we have to participate and try to make that better. Um, Every forum where power is exercised that will control the destiny of Black people in this country, not to the exclusion of us engaging in our own um, imagination about what we want to build and and strengthening our own communities, but we don't have the luxury of seeding any of these uh, fora where we have the opportunity to protect, defend, and, and expand the rights of the, the people that we represent. And the Supreme Court is, you know, is among them. So I wanted to join the commission in order to, to um, play a role. And as I said, at the last commission meeting, there were two things that were super, super important to me. One was um, that I believe this is a process. However, we're going to think about changes to the court. And I think people are legitimately thinking about a range of changes that not, don't just have to do with expansion. In fact, I was actually quite interested in, in many of the other aspects that we took up on the commission and the shadow docket and accusal and all that stuff, things I've been writing and talking about for quite some time. 
um, because I think those are very important issues to, to those of us who practice before the court. Um, so that seemed really important. And I was happy that the commission was prepared to take up some of those issues because it is all about legitimacy and how do you make it better? There's no workplace that's not trying to be better. We just went through a whole strategic planning process, you know, at LDF and other workplaces do the same and they have policy manuals and they're updating things. And the high court can't be just free from any review. And the idea that some commissioners suggested that, you know, we might be taking a, a dig at them, that we were basically ourselves undermining the legitimacy of the court by suggesting changes is, in my view, just not, it's just bunk. That's just not what you do in a democracy. Every institution in the democracy has to either subject itself to rigorous review and change or be subjected to rigorous review and change. And I've been saying that about the legal profession, for example. The second reason I wanted to join was because I knew it would be, um, as it must be under um, the rules of FACA, a, a, com a commission that had disparate people with disparate views on it. And given what has happened the last five years in this country, I actually wanted to participate on a commission where we were united as lawyers in a sense of professional duty to see if we could have these hard conversations and create out of that something that we all could stand behind. That was extremely important to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did it. And I feel like maybe this connects up, Cheryl, and your answer about being visible and <laughs> being pro-truth. Because the last time you were on the show, you talked, before it was cool to talk about the shadow docket, which happened this <laughs> fall, you were saying exactly what you just said. As a civil rights attorney, the only power I have is to create a record and for a district court judge to create a record. And that gets wiped out. And that yes. really, really kind of resonated, I think, with a lot of listeners who couldn't understand quite what the problem was. It seems to me that being visible criticizing the court has in some ways led to some changes, whether it was, you know, Justice Alito giving the speech about the shadow docket isn't bad, journalists are bad, bracket that, but, you know, moving SB8 to yeah. the merits docket off yeah. the shadow docket, it feels as though it's not entirely a fanciful thing to say. The court actually responds when we are visible and critical and that that isn't terrorism. <laughs> We're not in, uh, in any way trying to intimidate or terrorize the court. We're just trying to be seen. And it feels like that's a theme in what you're telling me today is Absolutely. that we have an obligation. And by the way, the court responds. Yeah. And whether even if they don't respond, we have an obligation to say, look, we, we are um, lawyers. And so we're in this thing, in this profession. And most people don't understand what the components are, how it works, or what, you know, as you said, what a shadow docket is, or, you know, but, but it's our job to explain that, to explain to the public what the problem is, right? And at what I was expressing in the last show is, you got, I, I give you the chance to be me, because we have to explain to our clients, right, why a 192-page decision from a district court judge in Alabama, in which our clients make this powerful testimony about why they can't comply with Alabama's absentee voting law that requires them to engage with all these people during the COVID pandemic, and they are Black people who have particular disabilities, why that gets wiped out, why it doesn't exist anymore, why there could be a decision that quoted them 
saying my ancestors had to risk their lives to vote. I, I don't think we should have to do that anymore. It's quoted, right? And it just disappears. I thank Justice Sotomayor for reviving it and for including it in her dissent. But we have to explain what happened to that thing. It's just gone. So I'm inviting people to join me in thinking about the shadow docket in that way, that we put a lot of work into preparing a case, nonetheless, during a, a, a pandemic. You know, my, the lawyers at LDF are people too. Most of them have young children. They've been homeschooling as well. They had to learn how to prepare witnesses, how to um, enter you know, exhibits. They had to do all of that by Zoom. And quickly, we, we shut down in March. Our first trial was in April. That was the trial involving the Florida uh, formerly incarcerated uh, you know, voting rights issue. We didn't complain. We just did it. Um, but, but we had to figure out how to do it. And we did it. And we made that presentation. And so we owe it to people to explain, well, what happened to that? It's just it just evaporated into thin air like it didn't happen. So, yes, I'm going to speak to that. And yes, the court needs to understand. Because they are lawyers, they are part of a system, they're not just these separate nine people that exist somewhere. They are part of the ecosystem of our profession. And each of us have obligations that run up and down the profession, and they should be concerned about a process that does not allow people to feel heard, that does not allow people to understand decision-making, that makes people feel a sense of disrespect, that makes people feel that decisions have been made perhaps too hastily, that disempowers the ability of lawyers to present their case. As leaders of our profession, they should be concerned about that. And it's our job to make that apparent to them because perhaps they don't know. Some of them never practiced. Some of them never represented marginalized communities. None of them ever practiced in a pandemic, <laughs> you know? So like, it's our job to make those things plain. And yes, I do think that there are occasions when they do respond because there are ways that they can be better. They are not perfect. And it doesn't mean that you're burning the whole building down to say, here are the things you need to understand are deeply problematic and that you can do better. Now, that's separate and apart from the, the outcome, the decision-making about the actual cases themselves. That's about the process. And remember, I taught civil procedure for 20 years, again, naively embracing the Robert Cover line that, you know, procedure is the blindfold of justice. I really believe that, you know? And so I do spend a lot of time thinking about the ways in which procedures inhibit a sense of fairness and justice. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more with Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about voting, uh, partly because it's one of the things you think about most, partly because if you and I are descriptively correct that we're in a messaging war, it sometimes feels as though we're fighting the last war. We're not talking about vote suppression bills anymore. We're talking about election subversion. We're talking yes. about throwing power to state legislatures. Yes. We're talking about uh, limiting the power of local election officials. All of that in tandem with what you opened with, which is kind of a campaign of terrorizing state yes. election officials. And I guess I wanted to give you a moment to just talk about 
the extent to which folks may not quite appreciate that we're not just talking about throwing out absentee ballots anymore. We're talking about what feels like the architecture of something much more profound. And I guess if you can talk a little bit about, A, whether we're catching that, I'm sure the media is failing to fully catch that, and B, what you're thinking about at LDF in terms of really big election subversion, which is profoundly different from voting rights. So, you know, Dahlia, you mentioned at the top that I'm writing this book, you know, about America's embrace of white supremacy. That's actually kind of in some ways, not just what the book's about. It is it is a book about the stalking horse of white supremacy, because what we are seeing at this moment, you're, you're quite right that things have accelerated. But the signs are always there and it is whatever is happening to marginalized communities. And, and so you're right that we may be fighting the last fight, but this is a lesson worth learning. There was not a lot of interest when the target was black communities in the South in red states, not in swing states, right? I, I joined LDF as a voting rights attorney in 1988. So obviously not a new problem, right? Um, there hasn't been a lot of um, focus on it. And what always happens is that what has been workshopped on the minority community is accelerated and transformed for a larger power grab. So I want to first acknowledge that because I'm not willing to allow the media, political leaders, or anyone else to bypass the fact that we were ringing the damn alarm bell for more than a decade. Those of us who sat uh, at, at panels having to deal with Hans von Spakowski over the last 15, maybe 20 years, talking about voter fraud, right? And the proliferation of voter fraud. Um, You know, we're pretty pissed, okay? Because we tried to explain that this illusion was quite deliberate and was a deliberate misinformation campaign to give them license to do whatever they wanted to do to the election system. So that I want to make sure I laid that foundation first, but you are absolutely right. What has now become clear is that having been allowed to create the platform and the apparatus of voter suppression targeted at minority communities, that apparatus was in place, including the the myth of voter fraud, right, which had been workshopped and developed to limit voting for the communities I represent, now was, as you know, one justice said in Korematsu, lying about like a loaded weapon, ready to be used for this ultimate power grab. And that is what we have seen uh, happening. And you're right. It is an effort to subvert democracy at its very core. Elections are inconvenient. It is once again a response to 2020. It turns out that um, we do mobilize. It turns out that we do know how to vote. It turns out that we can um, that we do have passion and enthusiasm, all the things the media likes to say that's not true about you know progressive people. They don't vote. They don't turn out. They don't do this. They don't do that. Actually, we do and we did. And the only answer now, because now the demographics suggest that they will not be able to control the outcome of elections without significant help, is to hijack the very election system itself. Right? And that's why I keep referring to January 5th. That was more traumatic for them than I think people recognize. And the only way to win that there's a reason why this starts in Georgia. The only way to win 
is to hijack the system itself. What Trump then did, and this has been his greatest threat to our democracy, is that he has demonstrated that you can do whatever you want and people will generally be too shocked to stop you. That in general, people will be too shocked to stop you and say what you're going to do and say it out loud and people won't think that there's something wrong with it. And he has removed the velvet rope that you know, used to separate what you could do from what you couldn't do. But that begins with the Supreme Court in the Shelby County case, because it was the Shelby County case that basically removed the apparatus and infrastructure that a bipartisan Congress recognized in 1965 and again in 1982 and again in 2006 would be necessary to hold our democracy. I always refer to the language in section in the, in the Senate report to section five of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, in, in 1965, in which in the Senate report, they say that the purpose of Section 5 and the preclearance provisions was to address not only discrimination happening contemporaneously, but what they called ingenious forms of discrimination that would happen in the future. Even they knew in 1965 that they would that, that, that particularly Southern states would continue, that white supremacy was going to keep coming up with new methods. That's why when Justice Alito writes the Brnovich decision like, well, this isn't something they ever thought about. Uh, now let, let's talk about whether it was in position that they knew. The senators knew the people who are responsible for actually writing statutes, not the Supreme Court. They knew and they deliberately created an apparatus that would get at those future ingenious forms of discrimination. Listen, not even in 1964 had they thought you couldn't give water to somebody standing online. Right. It took us getting to 2020. For that gem, right, to, to come up in the South. But they knew they wanted to protect against whatever might be those methods. Sherilyn, I think I want to land where you started, which is on empathy, because it feels like when we're scrabbling around for our superpowers right now, you are really holding fast to something that I think matters. And I'm thinking of a speech you gave in 2020 when you described, you know, the country as being in a perilous moment. And then mm -hmm. you said that Dr. King would talk about forcing the tension to the surface. Yes. Yes. And that under the surface, beneath the veneer of civility, this has always been there. Yes. And I love that as emblematic of so much of the work that you've been trying to do, which is say, this has always been thus. Mm -hmm. Now we can all see it. That's what you're talking about yes. in terms of the George Floyd protests. It's yes. also, I think, what you're talking about in terms of how we vote. Uh, it is certainly what um, Carol Anderson has talked about with us in terms of how voting has always looked like this. Yes. If you are a person of color, this is what gun rights always looked like if you are a person of color. And what I want to sort of challenge you to, 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 to lead us into the new year with, and there is no one better to do it, is that it feels to me sometimes as though the last few years, what has really fallen away is some of the capacity for empathy. As you said, we're exhausted. We are homeschooling our kids. I am, as it turns out, really spectacularly bad at long division. Um, <laughs> what do we do when we just feel like we're in a blender and the capacity? Yeah. And as you say, teachers who are trying to teach this material are not just being told that by law they may not, but terrorized in their classrooms. Yes. 
Help me think through where we find it and where we build it. So, you know, Dahlia, I think the first thing is that we have to acknowledge and receive how exhausted we are. We made it through essentially an authoritarian presidency uh, that, you know, none of us were prepared for. And, And we did make it through and we showed up, those of us who believe in democracy showed up so powerfully um, over those four four years. I, 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 we've never even, we didn't have a minute because of January 6th to actually acknowledge what we had done, that we kept this democracy alive. Um, and we, we just haven't had a chance to do that assessment. And so that's part of our exhaustion is we feel like we're just working, 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 and we haven't taken a moment to recognize how badass we really were. Um, There were many who were not. There were many aspects of our government and life and profession that did not clothe themselves in glory, but there were enough of us to hold the thing together. So that's powerful. And we we need a minute to acknowledge that. And we're apparently not gonna get one. We're gonna have to just keep going. But that doesn't mean that that we don't individually get to rest. I'm really a believer in this. did something I'd never done before in March. I closed LDF for a week. You know, it wasn't vacate, it wasn't anybody's vacation time. We just gonna take it on the chin. We we're just too tired. And, you know, we, we had to keep going. And so we just shut the office. And if you couldn't, you know, some people couldn't take it because they had, you know, a litigation matter or whatever, but you got five days and you had to take them by April 30th. Everybody's got to rest. Um, So I believe in that. I believe in catching your breath. But I also believe that going back to the surfacing of the tension, the only way we are truly going to transform this country is if we face and confront what is true about it. And that's the book I'm writing. Those of us who live or work with communities and people who live at the margins and at the bottom have been have had a a bird's eye view of the cracks in the foundation of American democracy. Listen to us and let's find a way to rebuild that foundation. Not to just repair it and spackle, but to rebuild. And I don't even wanna say rebuild because some just need to be built that were never built properly. We have a chance to make the country that we wanted. We're crying the blues because, you know, LDF has been around for 80 years. So when, was, when were things great? You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, of course, we are in a different because democracy itself is threatened and we have an obligation to fight for it. But we have an obligation to fight for the world that we always wanted, not the one that we were struggling against for decades. So this is also an opportunity. And what we have to sit with, Dahlia, is it doesn't feel good. It feels awful to have the tension surfaced because you have to look in the eye of the country that you live in. And you have to sit where we sit and you have to see how awful many aspects of our country are, even as there are aspects that are beautiful and worth fighting for. So we have to get comfortable with the discomfort. And this is our moment. You know, the civil rights movement lasted 10 years, maybe 15 if you take it all the way from Brown, let's say to 1968, that's 14 years. Did it feel good? 
Did it feel good when those kids were blown up in the church in Birmingham? Did it feel good? You know, we love these heroic stories and these sepia pictures and they're walking across the bridge. And it's so really, I mean, the whole thing started because Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed by a law enforcement officer. Did it feel good? The amount of people who were beaten uh, and who were terrorized. It didn't. It didn't. But they created out of it something beautiful and powerful. And what we hoped was enduring. Now it's our turn. So we're in year five. Okay. Well, maybe it's 14, <laughs> you know, maybe it's 15. But um, you know, this is this is our time. And we're doing it for those kids who your kids who may not, you know, be adept at long division because they were homeschooled by their mom, <laughs> but who sure will be adept at empathy and democracy and humanity um, and public goods uh, and and participation and engagement. Uh, and science. That, that's what we're doing it for. And we're doing it for their kids. So um, this is just our time. And, and, you know, the question is, are we good for it? You know, are we, are we good for it? I ask myself that question every day because I'm tired as hell. But I, every morning I wake up and I'm like, yep, I'm in, <laughs> you know, because we don't have a choice. Um, I guess we do have a choice, but only if we have decided that we would like to live in an authoritarian regime. I would not. I would not like to live in a place where elections don't matter. I would not like to live in apartheid South Africa. So we fight. Sherilyn Eiffel has been the seventh president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She is stepping down this spring and she is working on a new book for Penguin Random House, which will publish in 2023. She has also been just a North Star and... Uh, just beacon for me personally. Sherilyn, there is no one I wanted to ring in 2022 with more than yourself. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Thank you for what you do, Dahlia. This platform is just, oh my goodness. It saves me many a week. So thank you <laughs> so much. And happy new year. Happy new year. And that is a wrap for this New Year's Day episode of Amicus. Happy 2022. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your thoughts. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Till then, take good care of your health. Happy New Year. And hang on in there. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.